0: In the northwest of the European continent, where the rivers flowing from Switzerland, Germany and France connect to the pounding tides of the North Sea, lies an area that, for as long as anyone can remember, has been known as the Lowlands, a practical name for a practical place that would become home to a practical people. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 1. 99% of Dutch history. That's most of it. Over the course of this podcast, we aim to give a general, although fairly detailed, account of the history of the Netherlands, through to the current day. Once this general history is completed, which should hopefully take around 50 episodes, we will then continue making additional episodes on more specific events, characters, issues, and other topics. So, if at some stage while listening you notice that we've neglected something, there's a fair chance that we plan on doing a separate episode on that topic, but later on. Of course, it is always worth checking, because maybe we've forgotten something or missed something, so... Please feel free to ask us questions, provide suggestions, and generally say, Goedemiddag! All of which you can do via email, historyofthenetherlandspodcast at gmail.com. We also provide notes, sources, and other general info relevant to the episodes that we've released at www.historyofthenetherlands.com. In this first episode, we are going to crack on through the period of Dutch history about which... There is the least information. Frustratingly, this is also the vast majority of it. People call this prehistory. But as far as we can tell, it's still history. Before we do though, let's have a quick word about the nomenclature used for this part of the world. The modern country is called the Kingdom of the Netherlands and is comprised of 12 provinces. When this modern country was first established, however, in the 1580s, but which will be covered much further on in our series, they did so as the Republic of the Seven United Provinces. The wealthiest, most populous, and most powerful of these was the province of Holland. Resultantly, even to this day, Holland, which is actually now split into North Holland and South Holland, is often and incorrectly used to refer to the name of the country. In the Dutch language, the country is called Niederland. In German, Die Niederlande. French, Le Pays Bas. And in Spanish, Los Países Bajos, Or something like that. In all these languages, it means the same thing. The Lowlands. As a geographic region, this is one of the earliest appellations for an area that today includes the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and a northern chunk of France. Lowlander people include Hollanders, Brabanters, Limburgers, the Flemish, and many more. Flanders is today a region in Belgium, but also in France. These were all Lowlanders throughout much of documented history. For our purposes, for this series, we are going to stick to the name The Netherlands and also The Lowlands interchangeably. But when and where we use more regional names we'll attempt to ensure that the reasons for doing so are clear. So, with all of that out of the way, it's easy to imagine people who lived thousands of years ago as being stupid cavemen, but we think that's literally a literacy-privileged mindset that comes so easily to us, looking back judgmentally at our ancestors who were too busy spending their time hunting and collecting building families and communities and keeping it all together in an endless endeavor to survive rather than having the time to ponce around inventing things like writing. Besides, there aren't many caves in a swamp, which is exactly what the people of the Netherlands would inherit from their very distant ancestors. Over the course of the series, we hope to convince you that the ancient people who chose to go and live in this swamp which, to be fair, On the face of it, does seem pretty bloody stupid, we're actually playing a long game which turned out to be pretty damn smart. Their actions will create the foundations for a culture of pragmatic adaptability that has had and continues to have major impacts on the wider world. The biggest and most enduring major geographical event to shape the Netherlands happened between 250 and 130,000 BCE towards the end of what were the penultimate millennia of an ice age that had begun around 1.8 million years before, called the Pleistocene Epoch. During this glaciation, much of the region had become covered in thick ice. It had a huge impact on the geographical construction of what would eventually become the Netherlands. This impact was in the form of glaciers that, through their pushing, caused the creation of hills on the north and the south end of what would later become the border with Germany. Valleys emerged that would eventually become great rivers, feeding from the southeast into what would many, many tens of millennia later become the North Sea. Despite all this ice, archaeological evidence has been found in the form of flint tools, suggesting that nomadic hunter-gatherers, probably Neanderthals, inhabited small hills in today's province of Utrecht, starting perhaps... 150-something thousand years ago. With a little bit of assonance and alliteration, these can be thought of as bands or clans of meandering Neanderthalic Netherlanders. The inexorable expansion of the ice cap did ultimately drive the first people here away, or so it would seem. As current-day archaeological understanding suggests, humans did not return until around 37,000 BCE. Of course, new discoveries could always amend this chronology. The end of the period of glaciation was marked by the polar ice caps starting to melt, causing the sea level to rise, and all the valleys that were formed by the glaciers began filling with water. This land would have been desolate, no more than a meagre tundra where the growth of life struggled against the hindrance of the cold. There is evidence of human presence at this time in Limburg from around 30,000 BCE, as well as a Neanderthalic skull from around 40,000 BCE found on the North Sea floor near the coast of Zeeland, in the south. It was the ending of the Pleistocene Epoch, in around 11,700 BCE, however, that allowed the formation of a boggy, peat-filled swamp, hemmed in by sand dunes and violated throughout by rivers, rivulets, ponds, and all manner of bodies of water. Between around 9,000 BCE and 4,000 BCE, this melting water is also what formed the North Sea, previously a dry strip of icy tundra upon which one could walk from Denmark to the west coast of Ireland. Now, there would have been a huge onset of massive icebergs breaking off from the tundra and floating out into the newly created sea. Speaking of icebergs, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. In every episode, we are going to reveal something that is surprisingly Dutch. In this, our very first edition. Bet you didn't know icebergs are Dutch. Okay, not icebergs themselves. Icebergs don't carry national affiliations. That would be ridiculous. And nor did the Dutch invent them. The word, however, as used in English, borrows from the Dutch word iceberg, meaning literally ice mountain. Apparently, around the 1610s. The English term for these floating blocks of ice was islands of ice, which is pretty fun, but rather clumsy. In the 1690s, people in England began referring to them then as sea hills, which is an awful name and prone to confusion, given many icebergs are covered in seals, which themselves can be quite mischievous creatures. And then you'd have silly seals sitting on sea hill seals. So there you go. Thankfully, the English adopted the Dutch term, iceberg. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. So, the North Sea was created out of a previously icy tundra. This, by the way, explains the discovery of the Neanderthal skull on the sea floor, as well as many other artifacts throughout the years. It is strange to think what the area that became the North Sea would have meant for so many people for so long prior to its inundation. Over the period of thousands of years and countless generations, when these waters began to rise, and as the landmass shrunk and the North Sea grew, its impact on the lives of people and cultural relevance to them would have also changed. Today, the North Sea has, for thousands of years, continued to hold cultural sway over the people who come to live and die by it, and who throughout history have seen it both create and destroy ebb and flow. In North Brabant, stone and flint tools have been found, along with some evidence of nomadic campsites that date to between 9 and 7,000 BCE. The people are believed to have still been nomadic, and very little is known about their culture and habits. However, the frequent occurrence of huge inundation would have almost certainly made sedentary living impossible for them. In this time, the cold tundra of the last ice age had become a bit of a boggy swamp. In the east, sand dunes ran north to south, facing westward and flanking those valleys caused by the glaciers but now filled by the great rivers that feed out into the sea. By now, those valleys descended into great peat-covered floodplains, rolling but low hills of fossilized organic compound and silted marshes, all of which in parts stretched right to the coast that was otherwise defended by great natural dunes running down the west coast. In the north and the south, right on the sea, one could also find great sand and mud flats, the kind of dream property if you were, for instance, a crab or a mud wrestling enthusiast. Within all of this, huge open seas would coalesce inland, going up and down over time as random and sometimes huge inundations changed the entire land and seascape. This created rich and fertile areas full of clay soil deposited by the flooding sea and rivers, alluvial plains, they're called. This is assumed to be what would have enticed people much, much later to start moving out of the hills in the east. Towards the sea. Just like crabs. About six or seven thousand years ago, what are thought to be varying waves of migration from Central Europe and earlier Asia meant that pottery using hunter-gatherer societies of the region seemingly merged their ways with the technological developments of the Mesolithic and Neolithic revolutions that came from the East. The convergence over the next five or so millennia of these various people with their various ideas, laid the groundwork for the lowlander societies in the future. They brought farming knowledge like animal husbandry and different techniques that had evolved westward through millennia of life and migration. Cultures across the Netherlands varied. In the south were tribes of Celts. Also found in the hills of Limburg, evidence exists of large farms inhabited by people still using stone and flint tools and making spiral-patterned pottery that lends them their label as Band Ceramus. Along the coast, the people of the so-called Flardinger civilization were also pastoralists and fishermen, establishing in these parts a tradition of resource management that continues to this day. Here, despite the protectiveness of the dunes, dikes still had to be built and maintained, never with an absolute guarantee of integrity. Influences from Scandinavia also fed into the north of the Netherlands, creating, for example, the Russen and the Svifterband cultures, often classified more broadly as funnel beaker culture. Spanning from Scandinavia through northern Germany and into the Netherlands, their funnel lid-shaped pottery has been found in huge stone tombs called dolmen or hunebedden in Dutch, formed out of boulders that scattered the region relics of the glaciation 150,000 years prior and which had been shifted by people into place to create the mausoleum some of these boulders weigh up to 20,000 kilograms and sit purposely placed atop other huge and deliberately moved rocks how they got up there stuffed we know probably by using log and dirt ramps you know by using the intelligence which ancient people actually had if you give them a bit of credit. There's more than 50 of these dolmen around Drenta alone, providing the best 50 reasons to ever go to Drenta. Findings in other areas of Europe where this general culture existed suggest that, provided that cultural commonalities extended to how these people built their houses, their dwellings would have likely been built in the wattle and daub style. Walls would be built by taking wooden strips, and weaving them into a strong lattice called wattle, on which a sticky composite material made up of clay, sand, mud, animal poo, and whatever else, and collectively known as daub, would be firmly slapped and built up. Mud brick housing, basically. So, throughout this huge period of time, Between around 6,000 BCE and the 320s BCE, when the first written account of lowlanders appears in the record, humans here were variously transitioning into and establishing themselves within an age of agricultural settlement, with the migration of people and ideas also fueling the Bronze Age, around 1900 BCE, and then the onset of the Iron Age, in around 750 BCE. Iron was a readily available resource in the lowlands. Bog iron could be extracted from the peat throughout the country. Iron-bearing balls could be found in the forest-rich Hilly Ridge near Helderland in the east, known as the Felua. And in Brabant in the south, red iron ore was found and extracted from the riverbanks. In this region, in today's town of Oss. A massive grave mound was found in 1933 during the construction of a trailer park. It is now known as the King's Grave. The tomb, another two of which have much more recently been found, is thought to have been constructed at some point between 2700 BCE. Inside were iron artifacts, and that shows a high level of iron working sophistication. The most famous of these was a curved iron sword with a magnificent hilt. And by curved, I mean, it is really curved. Like like if you let your fingernails grow for 30 years. There's a picture of it on our website. Have a look. Looks like the most useless sword ever. The abundance of ore in the lowlands is thought to have led to an increased prosperity for those involved in its manufacture and trade, with imagined skilled ironsmiths traveling from village to village, producing tools and weapons upon demand. The wealthy aristocracy that is thought to have become established around 700 BCE would have provided income for these tradesmen through requirement of their services. And like across Europe, urban centres would have grown from the coming together of skill and need. Whilst exact details of the lives of people living around the Netherlands varied, those who lived in exposed areas shared one common element of life that came before all others. This was the very real threat of flooding, from both the rivers and the sea. No matter what systems of hierarchy and power were to be established, it still took the communal effort of real people living real lives to build flood controls and design techniques to protect themselves. What they began is arguably the world's greatest and most enduring collective exercise in not drowning. By the beginning of the Iron Age, people had moved from the higher areas in the east towards the alluvial plains in the north. Water management would become a constant theme to Dutch history that continues to this day. The land they occupied had to be taken, reclaimed, and borrowed from the sea and the rivers. This could never be a solo effort, but always a communal one. From early on, the people here would be doing what they could to live in spite of the incoming and outgoing waters. By 700 BCE, people in Friesland, the epic and sustainable people known as the Fries, who are still rocking around, kind of, by the way, were settled in the fertile flood zones of the northwest, around what would become known as the Zuiderzee. Here, they began building terrapin, terps in English, which are human-built hillocks or mounds, some up to 15 meters high, atop which dwellings and villages would be built they performed these epic early feats of urban construction so that they could escape the daily tides. As people also settled the fertile floodplains on the other side of the Zaudersee, in the northeast around Groningen, they used the same technique, but called these hills Vierde. What would it have been like to do this, nearly 3,000 years ago, to settle and build in sand dunes or to construct terps on sticky and flood-prone plains, or on the banks of great rivers that, for sure, provided life, it also carried the risk of suddenly overflowing their banks and washing everything away. You're an ancient Frisian, and to make a terp, you and every other person you know and that you had to muster would need to start gathering dirt and clay and mud and anything else and just keep piling it up, it must have taken cohesion and cooperation, as well as, we suppose, a quick learning curve and understanding of where houses would and could go on the Terp, and how the pilings they would be built on could be buried within this artificial hillock. All the while, you and your tribe need to remain concerned with daily life stuff, like keeping yourselves fed. Looking after children, dealing with births and deaths and injuries and illnesses. Oh, and twice a day, the tide comes in and you all have to scramble to higher ground or have boats ready to keep you afloat. You've also got to keep your cattle fed and protected from the water as well. There's plenty of grazing land before it disappears underwater until its next re-emergence. Archaeologists have determined that Frisians would often have their stables arranged around the outside of the terp, so that their cows would be facing outward. This would have made it easier for milking and for collecting manure for fertiliser and fuel while the tide was up. They also would have had to find a way to deal with all of the human poo and piss too. That might have been a positive of the twice a day incoming flush of water, but still, What these people endured to create a sustainable existence? It's crazy to imagine. Once established, the members of the communities in their little wattle and daub houses, pinned into the constructed muddy mounds, could never relax in their efforts against flooding. You've got to till the land, plant seeds, and eventually have a harvest to deal with. These are fertile lands, sure, given the millennia of sedimentary deposits made here by the rivers and the sea and the potential productivity of them is likely the reason you all live here at all, but you have to work for it even harder than most agricultural societies. You dig canals to redirect water. Perhaps you build some of the ancient dikes that have been discovered in modern-day Friesland, made up of stacked peat slabs at their highest about 70 centimetres, and then fortified with various materials to Build out an ever lessening gradient and hopefully a life saving flood wall. It is thought that in around 500 BCE, a people that would come to be known as the Batavians arrived down the Rhine River, settling on the lands between that great river and the Meuse River, the lands forming an island known as the Betuwe. For various reasons, their legacy in Dutch identity would last longer than any except for maybe the Fris. In the 300s BCE, around the same time as Alexander the Great was conquering Greece, Egypt, Syria, and Persia, and as the peoples of the Asian steppe adopted the horse into a renewed nomadic culture, the northern coastal dunes of the Netherlands were settled by people such as the Kananaphetes, and the land south of the Betua was settled by the Belgae, whom Asterix has a competition against in volume 24 of the comic book series of the same name. One of the earliest references to the people living on these floodplains, albeit coming to us through other ancient writers and not directly, comes from a Greek explorer, Pythias of Massalia. Somewhere in the 320s BCE, he made an epic voyage of discovery northward, even circumnavigating Britain and reaching up into the Baltics. He is said to have remarked of the lowlanders after having passed through these territories that, quote, more people died in the struggle against water than in the struggle against men, end quote. What a very appropriate and classic, classic source to be the first mention of this area. And much like we are today, they were interested in this interaction between water and land and how the lowlanders dealt with it. So from the very early stages of the interaction between people in this swamp and engagement with the Greco-Roman world, this fact would come attached to any discussion or documentation of their lives. An epic, although somewhat overdramatic ancient description comes from Pliny, who in the 70s AD in his Natural History, and keeping in mind the usual Roman sense of superiority to those they considered barbarians, wrote of the lowlands, There, twice in every 24 hours, the ocean's vast tide sweeps in a flood over a large stretch of land and hides nature's everlasting controversy about whether this region belongs to the land or to the sea. There, these wretched peoples occupy high ground or man-made platforms constructed above the level of the highest tide they experience. They live in huts built on the site so chosen, and are like sailors in ships when the water covers the surrounding land, but when the tide has receded, they are like shipwrecked victims. Around their huts they catch fish as they try to escape with the ebbing tide. It does not fall to their lot to keep herds and live on milk, like neighbouring tribes, nor even to fight with wild animals, since all undergrowth has been pushed far back." End quote. As we begin this ride through Dutch history, the content of this first episode serves as a constant reminder that despite the drama, the growth, crazy wealth, suffering, and endurance of the people in the lowlands, it all stops and starts at the point where land and water meet. How the environment over hundreds of thousands of years formed this part of Europe has, like all cultures, directly affected the nature of human habitation here. For the Netherlands, that relationship can seem more glaringly obvious than in other places, but this is likely because those environmental pressures are, and have always been, extreme, and the behaviours in reaction have needed to be also, purely as a matter of survival. In learning how to protect themselves from flooding, the early lowlanders set a precedent for generations thereafter to follow. It would take millennia, for their control over water to reach levels of mastery. And those steps will be accounted for in our telling of this story throughout this podcast series. At its core, the struggle against water created an ever-present understanding and emphasis in lowlander cultures of cooperation. Over time, this would grow towards a national identity that demanded the community work together against flooding, practically and despite differences that water does not care about. By the way, water does not care about any differences. It doesn't care if you're liberal or conservative, couldn't care less about your religion or your social status. Flood waters smashing into your village don't stop and take a census on what you all think about gay rights or abortion. They just bloody flood you. When the tide levels rise and the integrity of your village dikes are being threatened, and you and your neighbours run out with sandbags and whatever else you can muster to try to stop the water and protect all of your families. You don't care who else is there, as long as they are there. This collective defence mentality would, over the next two and a half thousand years, become a strong cultural undercurrent for the people of the European lowlands. How the cultural impression of living in flood-risk lands would fortify the people of the lowlands for years to come will be a constant thread in this series, which will take us all the way through to the 21st century. Another ongoing thread will be how the people who inhabit these wet peaty lands deal with their various, much bigger and generally more powerful neighbours. From early on and forevermore, the people of this swamp would need to learn how to adapt not only to the vagaries of the rivers and the sea, but to the political and cultural heavyweights that it will always be surrounded by. In the next episode, we are going to see what happened when the tribes in the Low Countries encountered the first real European superpower, Rome. So until the next episode of the History of the Netherlands, do we... This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.